Support for Decoder comes from NetSuite. Here are some numbers all business owners should know for 2024. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash decoder. That's netsuite.com slash decoder to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash decoder. Support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Tomer Cohen, who's the chief product officer at LinkedIn. And actually, I talked to Tomer twice. Here's a little secret about Decoder. We do the interviews, and then often the guests and I just keep hanging out and chatting for a while without the pressure of the podcast. It's always really interesting and loose. I learn just as much from the side conversations as the show itself. And after my first interview with Tomer, we were just hanging out and talking about the perpetual battles between engineers, product managers, and designers at big companies. And he said something that really jumped out at me. He said, we might be wrong, but we're not fucking confused. Now, this isn't a totally new line. It's been floating around for a while. You can Google it. But, you know, I love an F-bomb. And honestly, it's one of the most simple and clarifying things a manager can say, especially when managing across large teams. So I asked Tomer to come back and really dig in on that idea. You'll hear him say he doesn't think it's an arrogant thing to say. What he means is that making sure everyone is on the same page and openly discussing conflicts and trade-offs is the first step to success. You might have made the wrong decision, but at least you're not confused about what it is. On top of that, we've been talking a lot about social networks on Decoder lately, and LinkedIn is a fascinating counterexample to other social networks because it doesn't have the same engagement-based success metrics as other social platforms like Twitter and Instagram. Tomer doesn't care about time spent or engagement on LinkedIn. The platform is designed to be successful when people get new jobs. That's what they measure. That means his ideas for features and user experiences are just really different than engagement-based social networks like Facebook and Instagram and others, and comparing and contrasting the two is really interesting. All right, we might be wrong, but we're not confused. Tomer Cohen, Chief Product Officer at LinkedIn. Here we go. Tamir Cohen, you're the Chief Product Officer at LinkedIn. Welcome to Decoder. Thank you, Nilay. I look forward to our conversation. Yeah. Well, it's a lot. by the end of this, everyone will have gotten a new job. That's the, it's the promise that's of the goal. LinkedIn interaction. That's the goal. We have a lot of jobs to fill, so uh, that's, a good, <laughs> that's a good outcome for this conversation. Yeah. Let's, let's actually start there. LinkedIn is a social network. It's thriving. We live in a time of great change for social networks, I would say. But LinkedIn is a unique social network. Is that the goal of LinkedIn, that you sign into it and eventually get a new job and LinkedIn helped you do that? Is that the purpose of it? 
Well, I love that we're starting there because it's always great to understand what LinkedIn is for everybody. Uh, so first and foremost, LinkedIn exists to create economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce. I remember my first real interaction learning about LinkedIn was when I came to the Valley. This was 2008. I went to uh, a lecture in the Stanford Engineering School about social networks. All the buzz was about time spent on the internet and traffic and there was the founder of LinkedIn, Reid Hoffman, on stage, and he talked about how LinkedIn exists so people can reach out to the professional communities and get their job done, whether it's accelerating their career, whether it's like partnering, fundraising, getting a job. That's kind of was my first hook in LinkedIn. I was extremely impressed. And then later on, Jeff Winner codified it into our vision statement. But that's the reason we exist. LinkedIn, at its core, is a professional community of professionals who come together to share ideas, expertise, but also give and get help to each other. Those ideas about time spent and traffic, they are still the core metrics of every social network, every web platform that I have the pleasure of talking to people about, right? Like you have to get people there. You want people to have a good time. You'd like them to stay longer. You maybe want them to transact. There's ways to transact on LinkedIn. You maybe want them to connect and then get hired. There's ways to do that on LinkedIn. Are those the core metrics for you for LinkedIn? What are, what are the things that you measure that determine success? I have no idea what's our time spent on LinkedIn. But I can tell you that we track a lot the opportunities that are created on LinkedIn. So for example, right now uh, on LinkedIn, every minute, eight people are getting hired. How do you track that? So if I get a job on LinkedIn, do I tell you? Does someone else tell you? How does that work? So that's part of the, the beauty of the system, because we, we know if you applied for a job on LinkedIn, you saw that on LinkedIn, and then we can actually track if you change your profile later. So you can think about it as a, somewhat of a, a nice closed ecosystem of seeing job changes. In fact, some of the great economic data that we get is from seeing how the economy is performing for people transitioning in their job, just a good stat, you know, given the macroeconomics right now. A year ago, the job change rate was 40% year over year. Yeah. Now it's declining year over year. So we've made from massive growth in job change rate to a declining job change rate. And we see it through the data of LinkedIn. So, you know, back to your data, this is just one aspect of where the kind of the LinkedIn economic graph comes to life. So you and I are talking on the day that the federal government released the jobs report. The number was higher than most uh, economists and analysts predicted. Did you know it was going to be higher? We actually, in concert, always publish our workforce report. And, and we see a lot of those trends coming to life. And for the most part, we actually even share data. Uh, we share data externally and we share data uh, with members to show them how it's performing on LinkedIn. And yes, there's actually a pretty st strong signal on LinkedIn to see, you know, with 875 million professionals, it's not the world's 3 billion professionals uh, in terms of the workforce, but it's a pretty good representative sample. We're also seeing trends in terms of behavior, which I think tends to be some of the most impactful. For example, skills is becoming one of those tremendous behavior changes we're seeing on the platform as well. What do you mean by skills is a tremendous behavior change? So I think for many years, like we, we really believed in the notion of primary focus for every professional and a match between an employer and an employees for skills matching, right? If I want to hire somebody on your team for a job, uh, I'm going to look first and foremost about the skills. And for years, the industry has relied from, uh, primarily on pedigree and which companies you worked for. 
And now we're seeing more and more that there is a, might be a tremendous change towards focusing more on the skills you have. So for example, we have our recruiting tools, which we offer recruiters to be able to create a pipeline of candidates and to source and to reach out. And we're seeing almost close to 50% of recruiters use skills right now to look for professionals. That's a big deal. That wasn't the case before. And that's increasing a lot. On the other side of the marketplace with uh, professionals, we're seeing many, many more add more skills into their profile. In fact, this past year, it was close to 365 million skills added to people's profiles. And that's like a 40% year-over-year change. Now, the reason this matters is because if you really accelerate towards the future, uh, I have a 10-year-old daughter. My eldest is 10-year-old. And I think about the jobs she would need in the future. It's really hard to tell right now because the, the job market is changing rapidly. The skill set for jobs, in fact, we measured it versus five, six years ago. The skill set has changed by 25%. We think that in the next five to six years, it will change by 50%. So the type of skill set you would need for the job is changing rapidly. So being able to focus on skills and the ability to learn and pick up skills is becoming one of the most impactful ways to make sure we have a great match in the workforce. You have like a data problem there, right? I mean, I can tell LinkedIn that I've got all the skills in the world. I'm the world's best carpenter. And a recruiter can search for really good carpenters and they can find me. How do you verify that I'm telling the truth or that the skills they think they need are the skills they actually need? Such a great question because uh, when it comes to skills, it is not an easy problem to solve in terms of how do you actually certify and verify the skills. Uh, just a few months ago, we acquired a company called Edubright, and that their entire offering is certifications. So in fact, one of the things we're investing the most right now is doing professional certifications on skills you have. So let's say I come in, you know, I started my career as a semiconductor engineer a long, long time ago, and then I worked into uh, embedded systems, and I, I think I'm pretty good in C++. Great. Let's go for a certification process and, uh, and assess and verify that skill. The great thing is once they verify that skill, we can actually show it to the recruiter. So it's not enough for you to say, have this skill. When a recruiter sees a candidate, they can see what verified skills they have on the profile. And it's a great way to perform a match because we know a lot of being able to say, I have this skill is, is a starting point. Being able to verify it is where the quality really gets, uh, gets made. Okay, I have a lot of questions about that because adding that kind of economics to this entire process probably changes the incentives. It changes how people participate. So I want to come back to that because I think it's really interesting. But LinkedIn is unique, right? Because it is a professional social network. You can layer in things like if you want to tell people you're good at C++, pay some money to take a test to get a check mark that says you're good at C++. Other social networks cannot do that. My thesis about social networks is that the product is effectively content moderation, right? The way that you moderate the content on the, that gets published, the way that you amplify the reach of some content and diminish the reach of other content, the way that you allow some things and don't allow other things. And then most importantly, the way that you design the product itself to make it clear what things you want and don't want are all the same thing. Is that how you think of LinkedIn, that you need to make sure that everyone is participating in a professional way? Or is it that's what you told everyone, so everyone's just doing what you told them to do. Yeah, you're talking about content in the kind of the uh, artifact kind of way, people exchanging information between each other. And if you put it that way, I would agree. I think at the end of the day, it's about matching people. Uh, you know, when you think about the core of LinkedIn, 
at the heart of it, you have this extraordinary professional community that's at the heart of LinkedIn. And then you have marketplaces built on top of that. So it could start at the basic layer, which most people, when we hear content moderation, they think of content exchange, information exchange. And you know, for us, it's about knowledge exchange. I have a question about how do I set up my payments? I'm using Shopify. What's the best way to set up my payment system? And somebody responding back. That's one way of exchange. The other way, somebody's asking, uh, looking for a job. And then the content really becomes my profile and my skills. Maybe that's kind of to your point. The other aspect is I am building my business. I'm a visual effects designer, and I really want to build my, uh, my business, and I'm showcasing my abilities on LinkedIn. I'm actually showcasing my talent. And that becomes my content, but really the match gets done when somebody's saying, this is actually a phenomenal uh, skill you have, and I would love to hire you for a gig, which is a real example that happens all the time. So if you use content in that manner, that becomes the matching place of those marketplaces. Ultimately, the value becomes when we see the hire. So back to your point, somebody applying for a job is a great starting point for a match. Somebody getting invited to an interview means there's, you know, there's substance there in terms of getting that process in. Somebody getting hired is also a good example. Somebody becoming an excellent employee is kind of the holy grail. And when you think about match from that way, you can think about like a funnel. How many folks are coming into that funnel? And ultimately, what is that amazing match in the end? Or somebody becoming a customer, if it's in a product, if it's in the commerce world. So all of those are happening on LinkedIn. Sometimes we can close the loop because we see the full engagement back, for example, when somebody's uh, looking for a job. And sometimes you only see kind of a few steps into the funnel. We don't see the full, um, full closed loop. So the, the metric that you care about the most seems like people getting hired, right? The, the number of people who are changing their profiles on LinkedIn to say they got a new job. That's one of our true north metrics. So we, we look at, um, and I'm sure you covered this in previous episodes, but we look at input metrics and output metrics. Basically, what's the input metrics that ultimately can drive value in the ecosystem? And then for our economic opportunity metrics, we look at true north. So for example, in the hiring marketplace, we look at people being hired. How many fixed income economy right now are getting hired? We know, you know, in the last year, eight people were hired per minute. We know we influence a lot more, as an example. We just are not able to capture the entire feedback loop. And that's just one side of the marketplace. If you look at the commerce or the products and services side, we look at how much outcomes, how many buyers are we connecting with brands, as an example. If a brand is doing an event, how many people did the lead gen form? and joined that event? How many folks showed interest in that? How many showed converted to that product? It's mostly in the B2B advertising context. We also look at knowledge conversations. This is a really important distinction that we put a lot of emphasis right now. Ultimately, uh, we believe that kind of the foundation of economic opportunity starts with knowledge exchange. And we believe that when you have, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of professionals in the ecosystem, they all have unique craft, unique expertise in their field. I could be two years into my role, but what I know, the niche that I know really well, very few people know in the industry. So being able to exchange that with others becomes extremely powerful as inspiration, idea exchange. So we actually look at how many knowledge exchange conversations are happening in the ecosystem. And when we know when they happen, they actually accelerate the other marketplaces I talked about. So for example, 
when we brought in curators to LinkedIn, people talking about their craft, visual effects, people talking about their ability, whether it's negotiation skills or diversity skills, the biggest feedback we got was the platform was so powerful for them because they were able to get opportunities from it. So it wasn't revenue share. Yeah. It was, oh, I was getting hired. You know, three months yeah. into the program, I got my gig. I got multiple speaking opportunities or I got hired for campaigns and stuff like that. And I think that's the uniqueness part, the unique part of the platform. Let's go from there into what I think of as the decoder questions, because I have a sense of what LinkedIn is. I have a sense of what you care about as the metrics, but you're the chief product officer of LinkedIn, which is a small part of a giant company at Microsoft. Microsoft has a lot of bits and bobs, a lot of pieces of the puzzle. Once you're on LinkedIn, you can go to GitHub. You can go to Microsoft Excel. Like You can see a sort of bigger Microsoft strategy to just own work from top to bottom. What do you do as the chief product officer of LinkedIn to align the strategy? What does your day-to-day look like? Uh, so taking a step back, so if I would put it simply, as the chief product officer, uh, I'm responsible for everything we built. So it starts with setting the product strategy for the company to then overseeing the teams building it. So that includes the product areas, the product leaders on my team who are leading specific areas. That includes the design team, the business development team, the news and editorial team, and then our content production teams as a whole. Um, and when you think about specifically from the role of the chief product officer, it's a relatively new role in the industry in many ways because I think many, many companies are moving to shifting to thinking more around the customer at the center of their offering. And from that, you go directly to the product side. So then you're seeing a lot more head of product or, or chief product officer roles. And a lot of the work we're doing from there starts from how do we align to our vision statement as a company. And from that, you go to the strategy level and then to the execution across the teams. What do you think is the difference between vision and strategy? You know, early on, when I joined, Jeff Winner was the CEO, and this is something that was an extremely big part of how we operated and fought in LinkedIn. Jeff codified it as the vision as being the dream. Ultimately, if you're successful, what change are you making in the world? And the mission was more of that tangible aspect of it that you can start almost measuring on a daily basis. And then we go all the way to values, by the way. We call this vision to values process. It's an incredible exercise that everyone went through in the company. And the vision for LinkedIn is to create economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce. I can already tell you our, our work will never be done, right? This would be like one of those incredible things. We can always do a lot more. The mission is to connect the world's professionals, make them more productive and successful. And that brings me back to our conversation about marketplaces, right? Ultimately, I can see if I can create a match. I can see if I can create a great hire, a great outcome for a buyer and for a seller. I can create a great outcome for a knowledge seeker or a knowledge creator. And then we go from that all the way to the strategy. Obviously, the vision and mission are kind of more evergreen. They don't change. They're more constant. The strategy evolves with time based on the market needs and all the way to the values of how we operate, what's the culture of the company itself. When you think about this strategy changing on a different time scale than the vision and the values, wait, the vision and the mission. Yeah. We got to make a flowchart. When you think about the strategy of- we do have, I have a flowchart. I can share it with you. Yeah, you got to share us the flowchart. We'll put it in the show notes. When you think about the strategy changing more rapidly than the vision and the mission, that to me is like the ball game, right? Like- the strategy of the company is pretty big. 
right? Everything should ladder into the strategy. But the market changes, people change, people stop using their desktop computers and they start using their mobile phones and maybe one day we're all going to be in headsets. The product has to change really rapidly to get ahead of those big shifts. Do you sit around worrying about the metaverse? Do you think, oh man, like there was a boom in PC sales last year and more people are working from home which means more people have the opportunity to have LinkedIn open on their laptops, which they could not do in their cubicles at work. Is that stuff that comes up to you or is that happening way below at a more tactical level? I sit around getting excited about it. Um, so when I think about, in fact, uh, you know, just a quick story there. So I joined LinkedIn. Did you join LinkedIn via LinkedIn? Not really. So, have you I ever dogfooded LinkedIn? Have you ever answered a cold recruiter pitch on LinkedIn in an email? Of course, all the time. Because <laughs> it's pretty thirsty, man. The recruiters in the email are it's pretty intense. We this is you know when you start leveraging LinkedIn on its uh, full abilities, it's an incredible superpower skill for everybody. Have you ever gotten an offer on LinkedIn and then gone to your boss and then pretended the offer is more serious than it was? <laughs> Uh, I did not, but I, okay. I don't because that's like the true LinkedIn power move is you get the raise just out of the out of the emails. That's uh, that's not uncommon though. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then you know, sometimes those become real. In fact, yeah, one of the beautiful things about my my job is when you go and meet people and they tell you, you know, the way I got this gig is through LinkedIn, and it started with a cold email. In fact, this is from uh, three months ago. Somebody called me and said. I can't believe how I just fundraised. I send an investor I really respect. I send him my deck on LinkedIn. And he said, can we talk? And I never believe I can do that so effectively of LinkedIn. And they're like, oh, mind blown. I can do a lot more. There's so much aspect to that. But is that, again, because you've just primed the community to open this website or open this app and be ready for these kinds of interactions? That's the thing that I keep coming back to. I can cold pitch a deck to anyone at any time on the internet, right? We can put someone's deck up on our TikTok channel. It does not seem like that will convert into a fundraising round. Just doesn't seem likely. On LinkedIn, it does seem likely. And it's maybe the same people, right? They're just pushing a different app icon on their phone. But it's because you've primed them to participate in the marketplace on LinkedIn. Is that, I mean, yeah, that so just feels like it has to be a different kind of product. It is. And it is 100% a different type of product. I think sometimes if you want to understand LinkedIn, some of the analogy I would give would be you come to LinkedIn to check in, not to check out. And I think it's a big difference between versus the other social platforms we sometimes get compared to. Ultimately, LinkedIn is a productivity tool. It's hard to call the other social platforms a productivity tool. That's why it's really safe to open it up at your workplace. We want you to open up at your workplace. I don't know, man. If I feel like the, the boss is walking the floor and they see everyone's got LinkedIn open, something's wrong at that workplace. Uh, today, you, you need that base to ask a question. A lot of the stuff you do sometimes is like seeing what's happening in the economy right now, asking questions, coming back with like what's the recent, you know, Twitter news right now, and so on. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, which is hard to escape. Let's do it. Let's go back to your original question: of Why LinkedIn is unique? The context matters a ton. Because the context brings the right audience in. And you wear a hat right now, literally you're wearing a hat. I'm assuming it's your professional hat. <laughs> when you work out of work, you're going to wear a different hat. And then you might go and use a different tool. 
that makes a big difference in what type of exchange you want to do that moment. And that's in many ways why the power of the ecosystem is about who is in it right now and the exchange, the type of interactions you're looking for. When I'm, you know, if I'm going to a soccer match for my kids, I don't want somebody to go and pitch me why, like, their startup is fantastic. Yeah. I'm watching my kids' game right now. But if I'm on LinkedIn, I'm in that mindset of I'm doing work. I'm actually progressing. So there's more affordability in my, in my mind to actually accept to bring that in. You asked the question around strategy and evolution and how technological revolution is playing to it. That's how I joined LinkedIn. So in 2011, I had a conversation with who was in my role today, uh, Deep Nishar, who was the chief product officer for LinkedIn. And we talked about LinkedIn. It was just a chat. And he asked me, how would you build LinkedIn as a mobile product? Back then, LinkedIn was heavily desktop-oriented. And we had a great conversation. Then he said, instead of talking about it, how about you come and build it? And that was kind of the way I, I joined. That was the first conversation into it. And obviously, ever since then, you know, now it's AI, and it's going to continue to be AI for a long time. But specifically, when you look at technological revolutions, they inherently change strategies for companies because they inherently change the product you're working on and the ability of the product. So AI is going to continue to be that uh, forcing function for a long time. In fact, I think it's just accelerating in power. But ultimately, if you're a tech company, it has to impact the offering and the product and the way you service your members. That's why the strategicness of it changes significantly. I'm going to make a prediction that next year, 15% of your podcasts in some shape or form will be mentioning generative AI. But do you think because it's useful and it's actually changing things or in the way that people would just like say Web3 to me last summer? This is very different than Web3. Web3, I think, was trying to find applications. This will have so many applications. What are the applications? That you, like for you, what are the applications? You know, so I think we're getting started, but you can think about creativity. Actually, I heard this from Reed recently. Everybody will have their own co-pilot in a way that is kind of their own personal assistant for things. The notion of starting from scratch would no longer exist, right? You'd always have some kind of draft in mind or some knowledge base you can start from. Yeah. So I think there's already a creative base for things, which is pretty unique. It used to be that whole notion of tabula rasa and you're starting from, from scratch, but that no longer exists. And then I think the applications across from healthcare and medicine to obviously we talk about the creative roles and the arts, and but across applications around assistant information, whether it's in decision making, uh, we're literally just getting started. So you can take me on your bet on, on, on the bet we talked before. I'm pretty positive on it. Yeah. Here's a, you're a creative person, right? So if you had to come up the hard way, and a lot of the way creative people come up is they build copies of things to get good at it. Like uh, the classic example is art students go to art museums and they copy the master's paintings, right? People who design cars grow up copying cars. Like it, at every stage of being a master of creativity, it is useful to just try to make the thing yourself in the way that the, your predecessors made it so that you can expand on it. Your example like takes that entire piece out of it. Where do you think the expertise comes from in that situation? You'll still need to learn how it comes to life, but you'll have a stronger base to start from. Again, there's always that implications. And I think uh, there is the notion that it could be very scary because it's going to reform and redistrupt things. And we don't know exactly how and 
how much. And there's, there's the form around like, wow, the creative base is just going to expand so much. And, you know, human capacity will, will be elevated. And I think that's the positive side of it. But you're 100% true. I think learning creativity starts from mimicking a lot and learning from others and then building your edge, your nuance around it. And I think that's still going to continue. I think, in fact, it might be elevated because your base is going to be so strong. Your starting point is going to be so strong. Wait, is it strong? I, I think that's that's where I'm getting at is like, is it strong? When you see the output of ChatGPT on social media, there is a strong human filter between the actual outputs and what you're seeing because people are picking the best or the funniest, the most interesting output. And that's cool. And then you actually use it and you're like, oh, this is just kind of, it is just spitting out a remix of all the stuff that has ever existed before. And the remixes are really cool. Like I, I saw someone use it to make guitar tablature the other day and it was awesome. Like I don't think the open AI people thought that it could make guitar tablature. Like that is really cool. But at the same time, a person just playing the guitar tablature and a person trying to learn how to play the guitar, they're different directions in a way. Not being able to evaluate whether or not the output is good and worth building on, that seems like the challenge, especially if for you to build it into a tool like LinkedIn, where people are just going to ask questions and assume that the output is useful or worthwhile. Yeah. So here's like an example. You can think of, you know, we often at LinkedIn, we see scientists who want to share their craft and their research. And it's hard. How do you bring in something which is very complex and you bring it to the masses? So that's like one application of it where you can take something very complex and, and potentially use it to simplify a concept. The flip side is you can start with like a kernel of an idea and you can start adding depth to it. But it's that feedback loop between, you know, you can call it bionic, between the machine and the human being and and again, it has repercussions that could be very scary, but it has repercussions that could be very, very exciting at the same time. But I think we're literally just getting started. So we're going to see a lot over the next year, two, three. And I think that will tell us a lot about the capabilities here. We have to take a break, but when I come back, you know, I have to talk to Tomer about Twitter. I can't help it. He runs a social network. We'll be right back. Support for Decoder comes from Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Whether you're seeking a location for your podcast, teaching language courses, or selling handcrafted ceramics, Squarespace has all the tools you need to create a home on the web. You can create a polished, professional place that connects people with whatever it is you're excited about. Squarespace also supports all forms of connecting with those people, whether you're selling products online or in person, or offering memberships. You can make your website look exactly how you want it. They even have the tools to help you create a custom logo. And they make it easy to create a place for people to schedule an appointment with you, browse your services, or learn more about why you do what you do. Visit squarespace.com decoder for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use offer code decoder to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Support for Decoder comes from Notion. Winter is beginning to wind down and spring cleaning is just around the corner. In that spirit, it's time to declutter your digital workspace. For that, you might want to check out Notion. Notion combines your notes, docs, and projects into one space that's simple and beautifully designed. And the fully integrated Notion AI helps you work faster, write better, and think bigger. Doing tasks that normally take you hours in just seconds. 
Personally, I use Notion to keep myself organized and to store all the information I need in one place. I've tried a lot of productivity apps over the years, and Notion is sleek, intuitive, and powerful. In particular, Notion has an AI feature called Q&A that allows you to search all of your notes by simply asking for what you're looking for. For me, that means old links to news stories, long-lost notes to myself, and maybe even an old password to an account I might be trying to dig up. Seriously, give it a try. It's as easy as just asking a question. We all want to be sending less emails and tuning into less redundant meetings. And Notion can help you by automating tedious tasks, like managing and summarizing notes. It'll also help you save money on all those tools you won't need anymore with Notion's integration. Over half of Fortune 500 companies rely on Notion to simplify their workflow, and you can join them. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash Neelai. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash Neelai, to try the powerful, easy-to-use Notion AI today. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show, notion.com slash Neelai. We're back. Before we talk about Twitter, here's the classic decoder question. We've talked a lot about the kinds of decisions you might make and the, the ways you might make decisions. But how do you make decisions? What's your framework to make decisions? I think you can guess how I'm going to start, which is we start from the vision and mission. We truly do. That's like the main currency. I can't emphasize this enough. And then it goes all the way to our values as a company that kind of grounds the day-to-day. Like an example there is member first. Like we start from members. Like we, early days at LinkedIn, we used to get conversations around, hey, can we get this information for members and so on? It's like, no, we are member first as a company. First and foremost, that's the constituents we serve. Now that sets the overall framing and that's true across LinkedIn. Uh, But that framing is kind of wide. So when it comes to how we choose what to build, there are three things that matter to me most as a product organization. First, LinkedIn is extremely interconnected. We talked about multiple marketplaces, and at the heart of it, you have a professional community and how, on one hand, we're trying to connect job uh, seekers and hires, but we also try to connect brands and sellers. So context really matters, and being a learning organization is a critical part of connecting the dots. In fact, you could be extremely powerful at LinkedIn if you're able to connect the dots between how this amazing economic system works. So we have a lot of open forums. We go over of performance. We learn from member feedback. I get uh, tens of either direct outreaches from members or indirect a day uh, giving me feedback. Experiments are shared broadly so everybody can learn how experiments are doing. Then the second part that uh, matters a lot to me is being very opinionated. So as an organization, you know, one construct we have is what I call product jams. And when people come in to present a new product, a new strategy, what's important for me is they come really clear on what job to be done and they're serving. What kind of, what the audience need? What's the problem statement? There's so many times when the problem statement, people think it's clear, and then you realize people are thinking of completely two different problems, and then it sets them in a whole different direction. Being clear on principles and what's the opinions you have there. And then you can actually go really deep and you can have tremendous decision-making conversations because... There's so much clarity in the thinking that it leads to, from my perspective, a much better outcome. Who comes and presents when that happens? Is that a single product manager? Is it a cross-functional team with a product manager and some designers and some engineers? Is it two people met in the hallway and they had a Skunkworks product and they came and showed you? How does that work? It's really all of those, but it's really a team. It's a team of cross-functional leaders, the PM, the designer, the engineering lead, the marketing lead, depending on the product. 
could be the go-to-market lead as well. And they come, they present their local view of what they believe they should be building and how. And then in that session, I have my entire executive team joining and they all bring, what's the job seeker view? What's the buyer view? What's the seller view? What's the knowledge seeker view? And it's a great match between the global view and the local view. And the more clarity you have in the thinking, the better those conversations become in terms of decision-making. But it could be everything from, we have multiple like small, called like venture-bet experiments we are thinking about. So it could be a very small team. It's like five people. The whole team is five people. Or it could be a team of 500 people. And there is a strategy that the leaders of that team is coming and presenting. Uh, so it really depends on the type of conversation, but it could go from you know, 10,000 10, feet to 100 feet, uh, depending on, on the conversation itself. You run a very professional social network. There's commercial aspects to it. You have described it now several times as a collection of marketplaces. I don't think people think of consumer social networks as a collection of marketplaces, even if they have some marketplace functionality. If you walked up to a regular Instagram user and were like, Instagram is a collection of marketplaces, I don't think they would have any, any idea what you were talking about. Whereas the thing if you asked a LinkedIn user, is this a bunch of marketplaces? They, they might just say yes. They might perceive of the whole product that way. I think it's going to be really hard for Twitter to add a bunch of those paid products to Twitter. Maybe they'll be successful. Maybe they won't. I think it'll be challenging. There's a flip side, though, which is LinkedIn. You have tried to add a bunch of consumer features to the more professional social network. So we, we talk, this is a show about decisions. Walk me through this decision. You launched stories and then you, you took it away. There was a bit of a clubhouse competitor, a live audio space program. It seems to have diminished. Talk me through the decision of we're going to do stories like everybody else is doing, and then we're going to shut it down because it's not working. And then let's, let's talk broadly about why those consumer style features may or may not work. Yeah. If you take a step back with consumer products, ultimately you're trying to support the member in what they're trying to do. So, you know, go back to the job to be done. If I'm trying to express myself, what's the best way to express myself? Stories is actually a great example. For us, there was two reasons where stories were a really interesting experiment. And I classify it as experiment because it's exactly what it was. One aspect was uh, it's a better way to tell a professional journey also. I can have that, you know, uh, multiple taps. I can have that imagery and rich media coming through in a visceral way. And I can tell my story better, whether it's I have advice to how to fundraise. I can do that in a story-like way. Uh, the other uh, hypothesis behind stories was, you know, we used to hear a lot from members that one of the concerns around potentially sharing on LinkedIn was it's always on my profile. And stories was uh, that ephemerality notion of potentially uh, able to solve that. What we learned was exactly the opposite with the latter. The fact that it's on your profile is a feature. It's, it's a benefit of LinkedIn. What you share on LinkedIn, you see it as part of your professional identity. So when people actually share and engage on LinkedIn, they were not looking for ephemerality. In fact, they were looking to feature it on their profile, not to make <laughs> it disappear. So I think that was a phenomenal underscore for us around the role of content in your profile. When I share on LinkedIn, it's not about virals and like likes and comments coming through. It's really about showcasing to everybody who is looking at potentially hiring me or selling to me or partnering with me. Like, what do I stand for? What's my thought leadership? What's the stuff I care about? This is all personal so, marketing in a way, right? I mean, this is what you're describing is this is a large ad for me and the services I can provide for you. And that is what my LinkedIn profile is and what my LinkedIn interactions are communicating. 
it's your professional identity. And if, if done authentically, it's who you are. <laughs> it's but like also, a phenomenal the reason way. I, the reason I frame it that starkly is almost every other social network is getting away from that, right? Like Facebook once upon a time was about a profile and you would curate an image of yourself in your profile. Instagram famously was the most curated identity platform of all time where you would put, people would create these artificial versions of themselves being extraordinarily beautiful, whether or not that had anything to do with reality. I may or may not have been guilty of this. Who knows? LinkedIn is still that thing, right? You, you are creating a, a professional identity for yourself that you are marketing and you don't even want it to be ephemeral. You want it to last because it stacks up over time and accumulates value. Everyone else is down to make a piece of content and hopefully it will go viral in the slot machine. Why do you think that that has broken so different, like in such different directions? Honestly, I just think it showcases how LinkedIn is unique and different in its professional context. No, but, and, but are, I under, that's very good. LinkedIn is special. But why do you think it's it's so different? Yeah, because when I interact with you, being able to understand who I am, if you like think about any interaction. So our members don't talk in marketplaces. They talk in a need. I, I'm looking for my next interviewee for my podcast. Sure. Who is who's somebody interesting to to look at? Okay, I look at I can look at the LinkedIn profile. I can see what they're sharing and talking about. That could be interesting material for me for my show. I can look at I'm looking for a great person to partner with me on my startup. Be my engineering co-partner. Be my product co-partner. Phenomenal way to understand who this person is is for their professional identity and for what they say. When I talk to people now about Twitter, it's not a Twitter question. I apologize, but I, it's it's right there. It's the it's the Death Star hanging over this conversation. A lot of people say to me, "I need Twitter for my job." Reporters, especially. This is where I find my sources. This is where I market my material. This is where the other reporters are. This is where the editors are. Book authors. There are publishing houses in this country. Well give you a book deal if you have enough Twitter followers, basically without knowing what your book is going to be, because they know they have a marketing channel. There's lots of comedians. There's just like tons of people who are on Twitter. And the reason they're on Twitter is like, I need it for my job, which is a really weird way to think about Twitter, but it's how to think about Twitter. Isn't that LinkedIn? Shouldn't you, shouldn't you be going and trying to get all those people to come use LinkedIn, especially in this moment when it seems like a disaster? You know, I think it's, it depends on what they're trying to do. We actually learn a lot from journalists that they're doing a lot of their job on LinkedIn, trying to find leads to stories and trying to find the right, if I'm looking for a cyber, if there's a cybersecurity story. Yeah, but is this, should you, are you in this moment when you've got a huge audience of people on Twitter that maybe for the first time ever is at scale reconsidering its relationship to this platform? I can't think of another time this has happened for a social network like this. Usually the network effect just takes you from Friendster to MySpace to Facebook, right? It's not something bad happened and we're all going to quit. Twitter is in the middle of that moment where everyone's reconsidering their relationship to the platform. And a lot of them are like, I need this for work. I'm like panicked about what I'm going to do in my career if I don't have this tool. Are you doing outbound marketing to say, hey, come work here. Actually, we're better for this because we're work. We're not doing any outbound marketing of some sort. I think in many ways, it depends on how they see the value they're getting from the platform. For many of them, they're already on LinkedIn. Many of them are actually getting their job done on LinkedIn. That's the stuff we hear. So for example, we talked about audio. You mentioned audio events briefly yesterday. TechCrunch was running two days ago, uh, an audio event on LinkedIn, interactive audio event. 
it was about Twitter. It was their entire, there was an editorial team having conversations, taking uh, questions from the audience about thoughts about the business model and what should be done and what should be the interaction model going forward. The way they did it on LinkedIn is highly professional. So it was a professional conversation about Twitter. So I think what's naturally happening is people are realizing you can actually get a lot of what you're trying to do on LinkedIn already. And that's coming through for the system as well. Here's another example. Like when we think about uh, one of the very successful products we have right now is newsletters. People are building new newsletters. It's a great way for them to build intimate relationship with your audiences. So we have 150 million newsletter subscriptions running right now on the platform, growing extremely fast. Forbes launched a newsletter plus a group combo right now. So they run the newsletter that gives them direct access to their subscribers. And then there's also a group for discussion about the material shared in the newsletter. It was done naturally. It was done before the Elon news. It will be done many times after. And I think generally publishers, audiences, whether it's professional on identity as a person or as entities, they're always looking for a better way to get their stuff done. Uh, LinkedIn tends to be a phenomenal way for them to do so. We need to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about running product teams. Right now, businesses are facing tough choices. Do you cut costs or drive growth? Solve for today or build for tomorrow? Do you satisfy your shareholders or satisfy your customers? The answer is yes. You don't have to choose. With the intelligent platform for digital business from ServiceNow, you can say yes to unifying your existing systems and yes to accelerating growth. Visit servicenow.com to see how we can help you put yes to work. The world works with ServiceNow. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. We're back. The best product teams are usually composed of a product manager, some engineering people, some designers, and ideally they're all aligned. And then you said something to me that I am just never going to forget, which is you can disagree, just don't be fucking confused, which is an incredible, we should make t-shirts. Early in the episode, we were talking about AI and chat GPT. I think chat GPT is like that. Those tools are the place where a product team is going to disagree. We can even put that into practice here. You have product teams, you have to manage them. They often disagree. No one knows how to use these tools. No one knows what the right outcomes of these tools are. No one knows if they're moral in some case or ethical. And no one knows if they're useful. They're cool, but we haven't put them into practice. So there's no set of best practices or industry secrets to learn from. We just have to sort of invent new patterns. How do you manage a product team through that? Yeah, the, the, the exact quote is, we might be wrong, but we're not confused. Oh, it's, yeah, a very okay. powerful, it's a very powerful way to lead for a large organization uh, in general, but also for everybody, for some clarity of thought and clarity of execution. So, I, I do, think, you want, wait, do you want to say that again with the F-bomb? Because the F-bomb was very powerful. <laughs> uh, 
Well, we, we can play it through. It will be more natural as we go into the podcast. <laughs> All right, fine. It, it might come up like a couple of times. Uh, I think what happens when you look at like, you know, you called it tension last time between designers, product managers, engineers. And I think what you find is that they're solving for different things. And that's the problem. They're not saying it, but they're solving for different things. And this is where the confusion starts. That's why I say I would rather be wrong than confused. So come with clarity of thought. And then that lends itself into clarity of execution. You and your podcast, I love a lot. They talk a lot about decision-making and frameworks, and those are super useful. But there is very little discussion about actually clarity of fighting those decisions and then carrying it through with, with focused execution. In fact, I believe that whether you're leading an organization of thousands of people or you're just leading yourself, when you're confused, like it becomes impossible for you to rally people, especially when you're, where your target is really challenging and especially when you lack that confidence. So it's about striving for clarity and conviction while at the same time you try to remain humble and self-reflective to make sure you can still go for the process. So start for what we talked about before, uh, designers and engineers. What I think is you'll find is if you take each into a room and you ask, uh, you know, what are you solving for with this proposal? They'll tell you different things. So there is no point discussing. If they're both coming with different problems, maybe you should discuss the problem first. <laughs> so you can start a conversation by saying, hey, what is the problem we're solving for? And don't give me a headline. Give me a nuanced, articulated definition of a problem. In fact, get uncomfortable with the problem. Give me the trade-offs of the problem. And then you'll see people saying like, oh, well, that's not what I'm solving for. But are you solving for that? So like the engineer might say, again, this is a guesstimate based on experience. They'll say, hey, I want to make sure we can leverage the platform capabilities we built. We worked for a year. We built a platform. Now you're building something very different. Why the fuck did we build that? <laughs> and, and they're right. And then the designer would say, right, we're not innovating. There's so much innovative patterns today and motion graphics. We can start playing into this. This looks like it was built in the you know, two decades ago. And they're also right, but they're solving for different things. So I think going back to like, hey, let's just align on the problem. Like that would be probably the most important thing you can do as an organization. But this is true for everything. It can, we can talk, I don't want to talk politics, but we can talk politics really quickly and you'll see they're solving for different things. So I think that's like number one. Once you have that and there's a limit on the problem, it's actually, it's shocking how easy the solution can be. Because sometimes we just spend that time talking about the problem a lot. So when you come into the solution, what I ask my team is write down your principles. In fact, when we do a product jam, when we bring in a new product strategy or new design, I ask them to lay out their principles. And a good principles has teeth, right? It's supposed to make you feel, you're supposed to see the trade-off from a good principle. A bad principle is, you know, we should have simplicity in the product. Yeah, that's amazing. That's, that's beautiful. But a, a good principle, for example, like we should add some friction to our sign-up process so we can make sure that we don't allow bad actors in at the expense of sign-up growth. We can debate that for, for hours because when you want to build the most frictionless experience possible, but sometimes with frictionless experience, you're also introducing an entry point for bad actors and you don't want to have that, especially in a product like LinkedIn. We want to make sure the trust is very high. And then you go into, okay, is there a way to build a frictionless experience with no friction? And you can spend time debating that like 
for a long time. And, and potentially there's something really innovative you can do there. But the constraint is very clear. A bad principle is like, you know, we should optimize for the members having a great experience and the customers and LinkedIn. Uh, that's great. Like, you know, <laughs> you, you, didn't, you didn't tell me much. Like, I'm not, I don't feel uncomfortable. I think the moment you start feeling like, wow, if I decide on this axiom, this type of principle, I'm letting go of something else. And I think great principles have trade-offs embedded into them. Now, sometimes when I, I talk about, we might be wrong, but I'm confused, it can come across as somewhat... Uh, notion of like, uh, I know I'm right. It's not I'm not right. I'm actually, it's, it's about being humble. It's about letting go of being right. It's about not caring about whether you come across as smart or not, but caring about the company being successful. And I think if you go back to those examples of team dynamics and tensions is there's a lot about interests for my organization, for my function, for what I need. And it's less about the company. So people get attached more to company goals, to clarity, to focus, and they get detached from being right and wrong, you'll get to get phenomenal conversations. Now, this is just the opinion part. We haven't got to execution, which I actually think for many companies, they tend to think that if they have a, a clarity on the decision, the execution will just come for free, and that's not correct. In fact, there's so much confusion in execution, and we see this quite a lot. So this is actually relates to something I've been wanting to ask you about, which is, when you think about product organizations, most people think about what you have described at LinkedIn, a PM, some designers, some engineers, and the PMs in most situations are powerful. And that culture of product managers being very powerful is pervasive throughout the tech industry. We had Tony Fidel on the podcast. He will go on and on and on about how having a great PM is basically the, the secret to all success in life. If you go to Google, Google, the PM culture at Google is, it's like its own thing. It's its own universe. But there are other companies that run in other ways, right? Where design is more prominent and actually they don't really have product managers. I'm thinking of Apple where design is much more prominent. And they have product marketing managers who connect the designers and engineers to the customers. And maybe these are all just different names, but the companies and their products are expressed very differently. There's an inherent trade-off to that, right? Just in that, how are we going to structure the jobs? How are we going to give them titles? Who's going to have the ownership of the decisions? How do you think about all of that? It's a great call. Somebody talks to me about product management and different organizations, and it really depends on the company you join, because I think if you look at product management as a skill, uh, some designers do it amazingly well, and some engineers have phenomenal design skills. And I think in fact, some of the best people I worked with, they can play all roles. They can be very technical. They can be focused on the customer and the business. They can focus really well on the craft of the design. And it depends from company to company. When I started, actually, I started as an engineer. We didn't have any product managers. As an engineer, I was the product manager. Uh, and used to put ourselves on building great technology. We didn't actually understand who is it for. So we had the best technology, but not really a solution for it. It was, it was kind of odd. So I think to your question around the, the product management side of the role and how it comes to life, for me, it's kind of the, a good description of roles and responsibilities. It's about execution. I run an organization that's comprised of product managers, designers, business development, editorial team that is responsible for our content and play a big role in decision making, our content production team. So it's a very diverse team of product builders. And we have a lot of clarity on the roles and responsibilities. And it could be different from projects, but 
we have what we call a, a process called rapid, which is for every project, there is a decision maker, there is a recommender. The recommender tends to be the subject matter expert. The decision could be somebody who has multiple objectives they're trying to prioritize and running the organization. There's a performing team, there's an inputting team, and there's an approving team. You can think of legal in some cases as an approving team, depending if, if we're doing something illegal or not, and we want to make sure we stay away from doing anything illegal and, and we do everything with high trust. And we make sure that whenever we start a process or a project, there's clarity on roles and responsibilities. So there's only one person who can be the decider that allows for velocity of decision-making. So, for example, for us, is design gets, they have complete uh, D, we call it the decision on how the product is going to look like. Engineers have uh, complete D about how we build it. And product managers about what are we building. The features, the roadmap is a product management deciding dimension. Now, they all brainstorm with each other. In fact, uh, we hardly have any conflict within core teams of PM design engineers. It's, I can't think of the last time it happened. Usually it's across different product teams that have competing uh, objectives based on resources. That's where usually the, tens the tension comes from. You know that I'm uh, really interested in structures, right? So you have these, you're saying you have these core teams. You oversee it all, so it all matters up to you. Maybe that you just break all the ties. But I see it at other companies where you have a design department and you have an engineering department and then you make cross-functional teams and you say, make this number go up. And then there might be some argument within the larger organization that prevents that team from making that number go up. And you, do you see this? I can just pick any large company. I can pick Microsoft. Like this is a thing that happens at any company that hits any scale. I don't mean to pick on any one company. It's just I hear about it all the time as I talk to people like you, that these are the kinds of actual problems you solve in your day. How are you structured? Are you structured where you have an engineering department that lends engineers to cross-functional teams? Or do you have PMs that run teams of engineers and designers? Yeah. So at the company level, rolling up to our CEO, Ryan Wozlanski, we roll up functionally. So I run the product team. My counterpart runs the engineering team. We have the legal team, the marketing team, the, the sales team. And on, uh, in my organization, there's the product managers, the designers, business development, content production, editorial, and so on. And what we do is then we run product areas. So, for example, we talked about last time about we have a team dedicated to the talent marketplace, connecting job seekers with recruiters. We have a team dedicated to our products and services marketplaces, connecting marketers and sellers to buyers. And we have a, a, a big team dedicated to knowledge exchange between knowledge seekers and knowledge creators. Those run separately and they have every function represented. So the, let's call it the job seeker team has a PM, a designer, an engineer, a marketer. It's rare. I can't think of the last time it happened that within a team, there is a need for an escalation because they usually start from a very clear understanding of roles and responsibilities and there is a roadmap. It's not rare, it's very often, that across teams there is escalation. Because, for example, the trust team and the growth team talked about you know, our <laughs> sign-up flow and how much friction. And uh, this is where the teams and I, I, we actually encourage escalations. We basically say, you know, there's another thing that I use often that I, I've learned from a good friend, which is, you know, are we disagreeing or misunderstanding each other? You'll find that in large organizations, 
teams debate stuff forever. And usually it starts with, wait, I don't understand you. Mm-hmm. Where in fact, they mean to say, I disagree with you. There's a big difference between misunderstanding and disagreeing. And what I would tell to my team is, if you disagree, escalate. Then, you know, move it up. If you misunderstand each other, spend the night and explain to each other until like you're both so clear about what <laughs> everybody's trying to understand, uh, trying to accomplish. But if there's a disagreement, it's not worth the time yeah. to just try to convince each other to death. Just move it up. Well, that's a type of conflict in a large organization that when it is healthy is very efficient. And when it is unhealthy, gets very toxic very quickly. How do you manage that kind of conflict in an organization as large as yours? To your point, I think it is a culture. And I think that it starts from the leadership and what's your role model at the organization. Do you role model that, for example, for us, escalations are, we call it clean escalation. You escalate with everybody else are on the thread. You don't escalate separately. Everybody escalates to their boss and they have their own information they're not sharing. Everything is out in the open because, it, honestly, it's all about LinkedIn. For us, it's about LinkedIn delivering an incredible vision and purpose. So if you let go of your ego and it's less about am I right or wrong about this and it's about LinkedIn becoming successful, it's very easy to do clean escalations. It's very easy to say, okay, like all I want to do is continue on my job. Most of the times, all people want is to just have progress. <laughs> it's like the, the, the last thing you want is just to stay put. That's the most dysfunctional organization possible. You're not doing anything. You're debating things forever and you're trying to be right or wrong versus focusing on the company and, and the purpose. And I think for us, it's all the way from Jeff, our former CEO, to Ryan, our current CEO, role modeling it from the top that all we care about is fulfilling on the vision and purpose of the company. And whenever you find examples where things linger for no reason, where you know um, somebody would send me an escalation, but not in the proper way. I would add everybody on it and I will ask for a clear understanding of what are we trying to solve for and the principal thinking behind it. It has to be role modeled. This is one where if you don't show it to your team, they would not do it. You mentioned uh, designers having decisions about how things looked and product managers having the decision over what features would be built and engineers having a decision about how it's built. If I had to sum up The Verge in like a sentence, I would say it's a publication that has persisted for 10 years because we are very interested in buttons and who puts them there and why we push them. It is the simplest thesis statement of our entire publication that the presence of every button that you encounter on every product is actually a a long and complicated story from the genesis of the button all the way to some person is going to push that button at some rate, right? I often find that at big tech companies, when you fall into the politics of them, we should put this button here and here's what it looks like, are not two different decisions, right? It's often the same decision and how big the button should be and what order the buttons are in are not design decisions. They are product decisions. And the product managers and the designers often fight quite a bit over what buttons go where and what order, how big they should be and what they should look like. How do you make the determination between the two? That's an easy one because you can just experiment, honestly, okay. and it's not, worth the, it's, it's not worth the discussion too much. If the button should be blue or yellow. Uh, now, if, you, if somebody wants to off. say... Like the, the, that example carried off all the way is Google testing 41 shades of blue and the design culture of Google just leaving. 
So, so here's a good example. Like now if somebody says, hey, I want to use multiple types of fonts all over the site. <laughs> and, you know, I think if I can get somebody to like, squ- you know, squint their eyes all the time, it would lead to more engagement. You know, this is one where you say, I don't think your design judgment is very good, even if you can show me some movement in numbers. Like that's not a good design. If you think about like the aesthetics of how the product looks and how simple it is, and sometimes it's a belief system. It's 100% a belief system. That I cannot tell you everything. Actually, data should tell you, should give you an answer based on your hypothesis, but it should not tell you data without a hypothesis. It should start from something. There is a notion of the simplicity of the experience and how you build it, and sometimes those translate over time. So you want to build something in. So I think like the button should be here or there, Unless you're like, the design doesn't look any sense when you zoom out for an experience, that doesn't make any sense. But if it's about like, hey, I think we should have, instead of join now, sign up now, test it. Those are not worth the debates. In fact, this is a good example of you're debating the sand, not the big rocks. Where I think great debates come from is, you know, what type of experiences are we building? LinkedIn, for example, we serve so many audiences job seekers, marketers, every functional hat we try to serve on LinkedIn. And that could lend itself to a very complex project, uh, product. Imagine everybody wants to have a tab. I want a tab for job seekers. I want a tab for buyers. I want a tab for recruiters. I want it like, that's a really complicated uh, experience to build. And the flip side of it is how do I build something very simple that caters to every audience? That's a, that's a great thing to with no specific audience having its own tab. And experience, that's, that's where you start to push the, the design into true innovation. You say, okay, like to really perform on that, we have to have incredible relevance. If I want to make sure like nobody needs their own hub in their own home, and I want to build it for a really simple experience through search and feed and notifications, we better understand the intent really, really well when somebody comes to the site. Because then I can serve Nilai when he comes in with a great experience. I don't have to say, Oh, Nila is looking for a job. Nila, you go to the job seeking tab. Or Nila now is recruiting somebody for his team. Oh, Nila, you go to the recruiting tab. Oh, Nila is trying to market something. That's that's where you start building, I would say, like an octopus or you know, <laughs> very much a very complex experience. But building something simple is very hard. And that's where you start pushing the 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 elements here. I think those are the discussions where the healthy confrontation and good tension is actually amazing. You can start pushing the experience tremendously with those. A lot of that is healthy confrontation, good tension. You started off by saying good principles have the trade-offs built in inherently to them. I want to bring that all the way back around to where we started, which is AI, and in particular generative AI. There are no best practices for this stuff yet. Almost everything else, should should the buttons be bigger or smaller? We should test it. We should not argue about it. There's a universe now of product design best practices that might at least tell you where to begin or tell you where the pitfalls are. There's an institutional base of knowledge that good PMs can just access. There's an institutional base of knowledge for good designers and good engineers. There's none of that with generative AI. How do you avoid those pitfalls? How do you engage that stuff? How do you test that stuff? Because that seems, right, that's a, that is a blank slate for groups of people who have to make pretty intense decisions that could have gigantic positive returns for your business and also gigantic negative consequences. That is the biggest question, I think, right now for every technologist who's had a chance to go deep on this technology. What are the best practices? I think we had years to develop best practices with technologies we understand really, really well. 
and we can go deep on. When it comes to the capabilities of generative AI and the type of disruption that I think we're going to start seeing in the market, good disruption, but also I think in some cases, potentially scary disruption, building that playbook is going to be one of the most important things we can do. Uh, and I, I would zoom back to, I think we're getting to a place where technology is leapfrogging society's ability to comprehend it and starting to put more muscle and more intelligence around building those guardrails to what is okay, what is not okay. Uh, I'm a big fan of the work happening out of Microsoft with responsible AI. There's so many elements to it, from fairness to equity to how transparent it is that are really key. And sometimes those are constraining AI, but I think constraining it in a way that uh, helps society move forward with it. But a lot, a lot of that is needed uh, for many companies. In fact, you know, we haven't talked about the roles of governments in this and the roles of third-party institutions of those. But I think that's going to be the biggest conversation coming uh, upon us in the next few years. We can talk about governments and regulators. I think they are pretty far behind the curve in general. I think that's a especially st- in the U.S. Yeah, that's a safe statement. It feels like, uh, but a big company like Microsoft is not right. It's a big company. It has a responsible AI initiative. It is a leader in many of these services for many of these kinds of bleeding edge technologies. Is there a place where at LinkedIn you're like, okay, I run a pretty sizable team at LinkedIn. It's part of LinkedIn. LinkedIn is part of Microsoft. The internal Microsoft AI regulatory body shows up and says, I need you to stop doing that. I need you to stop helping people write their own resumes on LinkedIn using our generative AI product until we get it right. I would say it's, uh, it's one that is it's so aligned because I think starting from Microsoft and we are a proud part of Microsoft, they are leading the industry in this and they care tremendously and there's ethics built into every element of how responsible AI builds. So I think in many ways we learn from them. At the same time, LinkedIn is unique. Like user-generated content happens a lot more frequently on LinkedIn than on the other part of Microsoft tools. So there's parts we see that are really unique to how we build it very correctly. You know, on purpose sometimes we constrain because it's also valuable for our vision, but it's also helpful for us to go deeper what type of elements we're talking about. So for example, when it comes to content, by definition, we say on LinkedIn, we expect professional content. So we, it's not, not everything is great on LinkedIn. It's not conducive for every type of conversation. We want to make sure it's most productive conversations in the workplace. People talk about work and how they do work and your craft. So I think we can go deep on a vertical like uh, workplace conversations, so that's something we can contribute back to the broader Microsoft elements. But we are so aligned on this. I think there's a massive understanding of the importance of it. And I think in many ways, because of Microsoft's diverse portfolio and different aspects of the product, from search to a social professional network like LinkedIn, to gaming, to productivity tools like Office, and I can go on and on and on. Yeah. Every business brings their, I would say, their best intellect to the table and principles to the table to showcase how it's unique for them. And I think we're pretty unique within the Microsoft landscape. All right. I want to do a two-minute, would you allow this AI feature lightning round to end this conversation? Uh, This is a new one? You just thought about it? I just thought about it. It's just in the context of this, right? It's user-generated content. Okay. I might steal it, so we'll see. Oh, yeah. No, I I want royalties for all these. But some of them are going to be crazy as I think of them. Generate me a profile picture where I'm wearing a suit. Your face? 
Yeah, I, I send you. I, I take a selfie, make a profile picture where I'm wearing a suit. Like the most LinkedIn thing I can think of. For us, the principle is about uh, proper reflection of who you are. So I think that I have to look at the picture of you in a suit and make sure <laughs> it's a good reflection of who you are. But as long as somebody can recognize you easily, and uh, we, we, you know, for us, authenticity of who you are is really important. So the more, uh, if it's in line with that, I think that. So that's a yes. That could pass. With some guardrails. That, that sounds yes. like a yes. Yeah. Write yeah. me a resume where it says I know how to operate a forklift. Write me a resume. So I think you can right now uh, write yourself a resume and bring it to LinkedIn. Okay. But I'm saying I want to type into a box in LinkedIn the way I would chat GPT and say, write a resume that says I know how to operate a forklift. I think but if I do you not, say, by hey, the way, just to be very is... clear, I do not know how to operate a forklift. <laughs> I think it would be cool to try, but I do not at this time know how to operate a forklift. You and I have similar childhood dreams, so <laughs> I think it comes to life really well. Um, I think as long as it starts from your profile, this is really important. As long as you're authentic to who you are, what's important for us is this is, if I can emphasize something, both for product builders, but also for the audience is starts for what do you exist for? And for us, if as long as what you're representing is authentic, if you're saying, hey, here's my work. I worked as this forklifting company or I worked as this inventory company and this is my work, but I, like help me craft it better. So, but you're, the line for you here is don't lie. Because right now I could lie. Don't lie. LinkedIn, but you don't want to help people. But, but if it's about being... But if it's about potentially like better crafting your, better articulating the work you've done, that's a nice way to elevate uh, and make it clearer for others what the type of work you actually work on versus, you know, I don't know. Imagine someone who, you know, we have so, we have most of our members and most of our engagement is international, but most, but the vast majority of the profiles are in English. So if somebody comes and, hey, I don't have a great, I don't have a great English, but this is my work. Uh, and they write it in Chinese. And uh, can you can you make sure it sounds great? It's it's written great in English. I think that's a great example of generative AI. So I picked uh, Operator Forklift because I, I feel like the truth outs in that scenario very quickly. You get hired to run a forklift. You show up to your first day of work. It's going to become very obvious that you lied. What about write me a resume that says I have great interpersonal skills? Write me a resume. Write me a resume with some examples of my great interpersonal skills. Which is so obviously impossible yeah. to measure, right? Obviously impossible. But th that will take years, months, if not years, for the truth to reveal itself. Okay, so here's, here's a nice generative AI prediction for you, mm -hmm. which I think will happen. Be people's ability to write something intelligent and smart, it's going to be somewhat commoditized, right? Because mm -hmm. you, can, you can easily copy-paste from a JatGPT bot and, and something like that. But authentically showing it through a video... Oh, interesting. Which is something, something we do today. Uh, so today, when you want to showcase your soft skills, you actually do a video. And you're like, hey, like, how would you, like, let's say you're trying to get a sales rep job. How would you uh, sell this product? And you do like a one-minute skit of how you would sell. There's a lot that comes across in video. But even if you're running off a script, you can see live, uh, that could work. So th for that, you know, there's nothing, I think, very much unique about it because people can kind of have somebody else write their soft skills, but video would be a good element of showcasing it in a more authentic way. Last one, and this is the one that I think you will be confronted with first and Google will be confronted with first and basically every platform will be confronted first. Write me a 2000 word blog post about content marketing that I'm gonna just put spam to LinkedIn all day and all night. 
It's, it's a great example because I think what's going to happen is uh, it really depends on your identity. Let's say somebody is in the research of, uh, they're about genome research, okay? They're a scientist doing genome research. If you can show credibility to what you just shared through the work you've done for your experience and you add content to it, uh, and it's somehow attached to the things you know about and work on. I think that's actually really interesting. And there's a community there to potentially challenge you and, and, and contribute back. I think this is where like people talking about their craft would be amazing. Maybe they come up with some idea of it and they want to add more depth to it. Maybe they have uh, a lot of uh, potentially complex notions and ideas and they want to simplify them. This is where the combination of identity what you've done, who you worked with, and what you have to say in your knowledge will be a really important combination. Just sharing something and coming across as smart would not be enough. Showcasing it, how it, you know, it depends on your craft, the stuff you worked on. I think reputation will start to be more and more important in this world where you can generate things pretty easily like you've never been able to do before. All right. So that sounds like a yes on the content marketing blog post. I cannot wait for this feature to roll out. Tara, this is great. Thank you so much for talking to me. I love, I love chatting with you about this stuff. Thank you. Thank you, Nilay. Thanks again to Tomer Cohen for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm just Nilay at theverge.com. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. And as many of you have learned, if you tweet at me about the show, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. It was produced by Creighton Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters, and our executive director is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.